G'day and thanks for joining us for another Australia Talks podcast, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. I'm DK and I'm joined as always by my lovely co-host RD. Unfortunately, Ben Along is still away this week, but he will, we promise, he'll be back soon. Today is the 25th of April and this week's topic is Anzac Day. And then we'll jump into this week in Australian history with our deet and of course we'll finish off as always with the 4x bottle top question but before we get into all of that how are you today look i'm traveling all right dk i've got a little bit of a cold from those filthy city folk up in melbourne where i went to see uh the the second week of the comedy festival the festival was 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 good, but uh, I've paid for it with a runny nose and a bag full of used tissues. So, if people Ooh. listening think I'm a little bit uh, nasally tonight, that's because I'm a little bit nasally. So, look, I'll do my best on the the mute button. But it was a good it was a good uh, festival. And then in the weekend, uh, we had uh, my wife's nephew down and his his son and. Look, that was a, a nice, relaxed weekend. Went to Legoland at. Oh wow! Uh, yeah, I'm got to say, I thought. Look, oh, we were going there on the way home. Picked him up from there, and I thought, oh yeah, okay, that'll be. Um, I'll, I'll tick it off. Do the uh, the the uncle-y type. You, I got to say, I was pretty impressed by the scale models of Melbourne. And for something that was contained in a shopping centre for little kids, it were, there's a couple of rides in there that I thought, well, that was that was pretty impressive. Look, there was a there was one that went round, and it was some wizard thing. I can't remember what it is, but basically, the harder you pedaled, the higher you ro- rose up as you went round. So it had that interaction, and another one you were shooting orcs and everything. And then there was lots of play things and make your own sort of stop animation movie. It was. I got to say, I was I was actually uh, it exceeded my expectations, and my expectations were low. But even if they were reasonable, it still <laughs> it still would have exceeded them. So yeah, that was a bit of an eye opener for me. So it was a good weekend. But look, hopefully, I'll get this bloody cold out of the way because it's uh, what pain in the nose, I suppose. Yeah, uh, yeah. What about you? Exactly right. That's a pain in the nose. <laughs> what oh, have you been doing? Hang on, I'm so interested about this. Like, oh. Was this a was this a travelling exhibit sort of thing or something? No, it's uh, look. I didn't it's even know about in, it. In uh, Melbourne, is it? Yeah. Look, Chadston is an enormous uh, shopping yes. centre. From from memory, it's something like the uh, biggest shopping centre in the it southern is. Oh, it is. Big sh- yeah, it is. I, I've I've been there myself. I um I pride myself on my sense of direction, and I didn't get <laughs> lost. I didn't yeah. I didn't get lost? But I certainly felt a little bit overwhelmed at the scale of the shopping centre. It's more akin to like a small town <laughs> than yep. than what you would normally think of as a shopping centre. It was and huge. it's not gridded either. You know, no. it's, it's it's got sort of you sort of amble in some things, and I'm guessing that's partially by design and partially art, artistic. Uh, so, oh, okay, well, you know the one. Look, it's still growing. I mean, they're they're doing they're doing more extensions to it. Really? To oh wow! Yeah, yeah, yeah. The thing the thing's not getting any bloody smaller. So <laughs> I didn't even know Lego Land was a, a thing, and when um, my nephew, well, Helen's my um, wife's nephew, had said. Uh, Let's go along to it. I thought, okay, I'll see how it goes. Yeah, cool. But yeah, it's it's a permanent it's a permanent setup. Um, 
a lot crammed into a really small space. Now, I haven't been to Lego Lens anywhere. I don't know whether they're following a a formula or um, some like whether there's a Lego Land franchise. Don't know any of that. But for me, my experience there was uh, it was it was very well done. It's to, to the point where I would suggest it to other uh, other people with with kids who are interested in in Lego. That is quite the praise. I think listeners by this point will understand that your recommendation does not come lightly. So oh, um, that, yep. says a lo- that says a lot. So the reason I ask is because we did have uh, a, 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 like, a, like a touring. Uh, I, I think they were independent people and it right. was more like a like a collection of Lego things that these people had made um, had come around and I, I knew it, uh, it was sort of touring a lot of Southeast Queensland. Um, <laughs> and it was amazing. Like, honestly, the amount of money these people had spent on, on Lego. Uh, but it was really cool. And this, my son and I went to this. This was uh, last year, the year before, something like that. Um, and it, it was great fun. It was great fun, so I completely oh, look, I'm understand. Not, having seen this, I'm I'm not surprised. And I've look, I've seen I've seen models, you know, that they've made out of Lego before. But to actually see things from the city of Melbourne, particularly having just been there for the bloody comedy festival, and seeing how well done they were, and the colours being the same, and even things like the there's a particular skyscraper that I I like in there that's got. Uh, an interesting, slight, slightly, uh, it's not quite a rectangle. It's got a slight twist and a, a, a gold band about it that sticks out a, a bit, and I think it's quite an attractive building. Absolutely uh, nailed of, it. This is one of the new skyscrapers of Melbourne, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, yes. e- e- yes. exactly. I, I, I think it's talking. only been up a few, a few years. Yep. But I looked at that and I thought, wow, you absolutely nailed that. So yeah, for for me cool. it was a yeah, uh, it was very very impressive. Uh, cool. What about you? How, what what's, what have you filled your week with? This week feel like it is gone in a blur. Uh, I've been very busy. Uh, just I don't know. I've been busy, but I can't tell oh, yeah. you what with. <laughs> <laughs> I know um, that feeling. But of course, today is Anzac Day, and as our regular listeners will know, I'm a veteran. Uh, and so today is is a bittersweet day for me. It's 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 a lot of fun, but at the same time, it's definitely a somber day of reflection. So just before we started recording, I said to Adit that my uh, normal uh, Anzac Day is going to the dawn service to the march, and then heading to the RSL. Having a, a what they call a, a gunshot breakfast, which is basically oh, yeah. uh, well, it's it's uh, traditionally it was black tea and rum. Uh, these days we prefer coffee and rum. Um, oh, and I'll tell you what, I had some this morning, and when I got home, I had some more. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought to myself, you know what. This might be a good way to start every day. I tell you, you get the zip from the coffee and you get a bit of a mellow from the rum. And I thought, hmm, this might become a bit of a tradition in my house. We'll see. Um, and, we'll, and we'll get into why that's traditional a little bit later. Uh, but 
the rest of the day really is 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 a day of uh, a somber somber sort of reflection. It's a, it's a day of nothing. I, I sort of not try to do really anything on Anzac Day. Um, it may be it may be a leisurely sort of walk through the park or something like that to get the kids out of the house. But I don't. I try not to really do any work or anything like that. It's just I just take the day. Um, because and you think that's what that's like. There's a, there's more importance uh, to to you. Like I can't. I I I don't. Uh, and, you know, keep, keep it general. But I don't remember how old you were when you um uh joined um uh, joined in the the armed services. Uh, but do you think that being actually a veteran that's particularly changed? your experience of, of Anzac Day or is it something that you've traditionally always felt um, the importance of? This is, this is a really good question. I, uh, I actually joined the, the Royal Navy when I was 17. Um, so I was very young. I was as young as you can be joining up. Um, though I always had a deep connection to Anzac Day, my uh, my grandfathers on both sides were one was in the British Army, uh, one was in the the New Zealand Army actually, yeah. and um, I so I've always had sort of a deep personal connection because of those two men in my life uh, to Anzac Day and always uh, sort of participated in it. I don't think I don't think my own service has really changed how. I feel about the day. Um, Okay. Okay. That's interesting. If anything, I feel like I kind of earned a day off and I know that's a bit arrogant and that's not what it's about. But when my wife says, what are we doing today? And I said, nothing. It's Anzac day. Leave me alone. Um, I feel like, you know, of all days, uh, I've sort of earned the right to be left alone. If that makes sense. Um, it does. Because yeah, so to me, Anzac Day has always kind of been a bit of a, a bit of a somber affair, a bit of a day of reflection, a bit of a day of gratefulness. I think is a good way to look at it. You know, I'm deliberately not doing oh, anything. That's an interesting description. Yeah, I'm deliberately not doing anything. In some ways, it's it's punishing to me. I'm a very busy person to 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 actually not spend the day with something in mind is somewhat frustrating for me. Um, so to have have a day where it's it's a no it today we're stopping we're reflecting we're looking back we're celebrating with friends of mine with other veterans that I'm a no veterans I don't know as well it's always a bit of an affair where you meet people um, from different different walks of life and all that sort of right. stuff so so it is a it's a funny sort of day it's it's good in some ways and it's obviously quite um, emotional. And quite loaded in others. So hmm. let's well, get into that's it. That's very interesting. Yeah, look, I, yeah. I, I, I wanted to ask that before we got into the uh, the the actual topic of events. Into yeah. the nitty gritty. So obviously, uh, as as I've just explained, uh, today is is a, a very close to my heart. But I'm actually curious: uh, Do you have a personal connection to Anzac Day? Look, I don't. I don't particularly have a personal connection to Anzac Day, other than um, an, an uncle who was in the uh, the, the Air Force uh, that, I, that I was reasonably close to. 
Um, uh, I think that was the only family member I know that actively served. Uh, so n not particularly like my, you know, my, my father, for example, he was, he was sort of, you know, born in such a way that he was, you know, too, too young for the first, first one and too old for the second one. Oh, obviously, God, what am I talking about? God, who's way he was, I don't think, <laughs> he wasn't even born for, yeah. So he was born, he was born, uh, you know, too late for the, the, the second one. And I don't really have any, uh. Don't really have any relatives that I know. Mind I've got a shirtload of relatives, uh, but none that I'm particularly aware of uh, having have, having served in the um, the 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 armed services. So uh, no particular connection for for me. Well, that's not a bad thing though, because I I feel like after I've gone through this, I think you'll have. Uh, Perhaps not. Not saying that you don't already, but maybe you'll learn something, and you may have a a more profound reason to look into maybe some of those those family members to see see maybe there might be a connection there. Uh, maybe we'll feed a bit of that curiosity. We'll see. We'll see. So, look, I have I have mixed feelings about the day, as we'll probably get into. Um, but yeah, far away. Let's get into it. So, what is Anzac Day? Of course, it's a national day of remembrance in Australia and New Zealand that commemorates all Australians and New Zealanders who have served and died in wars, conflicts and peacekeeping operations, and that celebrates the contribution, suffering of all of those who have served. It's observed on the 25th of April each year, today. Anzac Day was originally devised to honour the members of the Australian and New Zealand Army Corps, hence Anzac, who served in the Gallipoli Campaign. So Gallipoli is in Turkey. At that time, it was the Ottoman Empire. Uh, and the first Lord of the British Admiralty from 1911 to 1915. Do you want to guess who this man was? I'm certain that you know him. Was it Churchill? It was Winston Churchill. Very good. Yeah. So Winston Churchill, he decided that if we could attack Constantinople, which today is Istanbul, uh, we could knock out the Ottomans out of the war and assist resupplying Russia through the back sea. His idea was that we would send an allied fleet to force a passage through the Dardanelles Strait and up into the sea just outside of Constantinople, and we can bombard them with battleships. A pretty reasonable idea. However, the Dardanelles is full of mines. Mm. Uh, <laughs> yep. And a slight sticking point. Yeah, a little bit of a problem. Uh, and it was pre sighted with artillery in the hills around the canal. So that the, <laughs> but but aside from that, aside from the mines, uh, there was the also artillery point in there and the, yes. the narrowing of a channel to make you easy targets. Aside from that, it was a damn good idea. Exactly. Other than that, it was not a problem at all. So, the, the interestingly, the Dardanelles, uh, for, for listeners that 
don't know where we're talking. In Turkey, uh, there is uh, the Sea of Marama, which is where sort of Istanbul is sitting in the, in the, in the top there. And the Dardanelles come down. It's a very narrow passage. I think at its widest, it's only like one and a half kilometers, something like that. It's not a very wide, but, it, but it's very long. It's almost uh, uh, 50 kilometers long. So... It, it's literally the worst thing you can imagine in terms of trying to get a fleet up there. Uh, you've got a very narrow passage that's full of sea mines, uh, guns on both sides because it's very hilly, uh, and a very long, thin strait. Couldn't have thought of a worse idea, basically. <laughs> um, the fleet was unsuccessful. Uh, the, the fleet did approach... Uh, and basically, very quickly, it was realized that this wasn't going to work. Um, so after the failure of the naval attacks, troops were assembled to base to eliminate the Ottoman artillery, um, which was preventing the minesweepers from clearing the way for, for the battleships. So if we can get in there, we can take out the big guns, then we can clear the mines and we can move up the Dardanelles. Uh, unprotested. Right. So, Field Marshal Kitchener appointed General Ian Hamilton to command 80, sorry, 78,000 men of the Mediterranean Expeditionary Force, which includes soldiers from the Australian Imperial Force and New Zealand Expeditionary Force that were encamped in Egypt undergoing training prior to be sent to France. So originally these guys were trained, uh, were being trained to, to fight in France, but were very quickly changed and reformed into the Australia New Zealand Army Corps or ANZAC. Yep. And they'd be commanded by Lieutenant General Sir William Birdwood. So we're going to France. We're not going to France. We're going to Turkey. Mm. And over the, the following month, Hamilton had prepared his plan uh, and the British and French divisions, divisions joined Australians in Egypt. So we're not, we're not going in alone. Uh, the, the, the Anzacs are going to be bolstered by British and French troops. So Hamilton chose to concentrate on the very southern tip of Gallipoli, uh, the Gallipoli Peninsula, which is called Cape Hellas, where they expected to be completely unopposed. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I suppose knowing the history, you can... Look, I, I suppose they uh, made the decisions they did at the time, but uh, given what we know about some decisions, I have a slightly sceptical hat on that. But, but anyway, sorry, go on. Yeah, this is what we call foreshadowing. So yeah. uh, the Allies initially discounted the fighting ability of the Ottoman soldiers. Uh, the naivete of Allied planners was really well illustrated by a leaflet that was given to British and Australian troops while they were in Egypt, and I'll read it here for you. This is what it says. Turkish soldiers, as a rule, manifest their desire to surrender by holding their rifle butt upward and by waving cloths or rags of any colour. An actual white flag should be regarded with the utmost suspicion, as a Turkish soldier is unlikely to possess anything of that colour. Oh, so, God, Lord. 
So there's a lot to unpack just in that quote, but I feel like there's a there's a heavy sprinkling, a smattering, a splatter of racism involved in that as well. So uh, <laughs> the Ottoman forces actually had a number of German officers, uh, including the commander of the Fifth Army, which was positioned in the Gallipoli Peninsula. And that he was called Otto Lindman von Sanders. Um, oh, Germans just had such cool names back in the day. Uh, <laughs> and so the Ottoman soldiers, particularly like the Turkish soldiers particularly, were not pushovers really not in this area at least even though it was a conscript army uh they were they were led by some very competent people um not just not just german officers but of course turkish officers as well uh that were very determined to protect their homeland because of course this is only a couple of hundred kilometers from the capital which is what we're trying to destroy so um so great determination on behalf of the defenders so the landings were scheduled for April 23rd, but were po- postponed until the 25th due to bad weather. Landings were made at five beaches on the peninsula and the Anzacs with the 3rd Australian Infantry Brigade spearheading the assault were to land north of Gabatepe on the Aegean coast from where they could advance across the peninsula and cut off the Ottoman troops. This sector of the Gallipoli Peninsula became known as Anzac, and the area held by British and French troops became known as the Halles Sector. So, uh, okay, right, I didn't know that. At 4 a.m. on the morning of the 25th, the first wave of troops from the 3rd Brigade began moving towards the shore on barges and ships' boats. The covering force landed approximately two kilometers too far north due to undetected currents or a navigational area. We're not we're not quite sure why. The landing was more difficult over the ground, which rose really steeply from the beaches. So basically, this is unlike most beaches that we have in Australia, where it's basically a beach which is met by a cliff. <laughs> there, there was. Um, I know listeners are probably thinking of something like Saber Private Ryan. You know, the machine guns just mow you down as you're getting off. That's not what happened here. Um, they were uncontested when they hit the beach in most areas, uh, or at least the Anzacs were. The British weren't quite, but it was. It was basically a cliff. There wasn't really. Remember, their objective is to move straight across the peninsula. Um, so their their original objective to the self was much more open, um, but the landing site was garrisoned only by two Ottoman companies, um, but they were up, he- up high on the hills, um, and they did inflict numerous casualties on the Australians, but eventually they were overcome. So that it wasn't completely uncontested uh, by the Anzacs, especially once they started to climb up these cliffs. But uh, it wasn't not not quite, you know, the D-Day landings as depicted in Sabre Provereye. Um. So, at this point, I realise 
that a play-by-play of events over the next few months isn't really the most exciting listening, and that's not what this podcast is all about. So let's fast forward um, eight months to November 26, 1915. Basically, the campaign has bogged down into a stalemate. We have not crossed the peninsula, and... We are not advancing any further forward. It's trench warfare as we know it on the Western Front. There was actually a massive storm on the 26th of November. Such a big storm, actually, that a number of soldiers drowned when their trenches became flooded. And this was kind of the final straw um, for Allied command and... By September 7th, it was agreed to completely withdraw. So a number of very clever ruses were used to distract the Ottoman forces during the withdrawal. Uh, Very famously, Private William Scurry's self-firing rifle, which was rigged to fire by water dripping into a pan that was attached to the trigger. So if you sort of imagine... Oh, God. Did it, you get some details on that? Yeah, so it, it's it's actually really simple. Um, I'm trying to explain it to you. It's basically two, if you can imagine, sort of like, like a paint can that is tied to the trigger. And as that paint can, there's a, there's a, a sort of a, a pot or another paint can, I guess, above it, which has a small hole in it that drips liquid into the bottom can. And as that can fills up and gets heavy, eventually it'll be heavy enough to pull the trigger on that rifle. And now, if you set a lot of these up, remembering that we're talking trench warfare, you're not really seeing the enemy so much as you're hearing them and and occasionally, you know, people firing off as they get a shot and things like that. So when exactly. So the idea was as they leave, as you get troops off the line, those troops would then rig up their rifle with this contraption. uh, And at a period undetermined because it was quite random, depending on how, how big the hole was, of course. So, and how quickly it would drip. So it was sort of a random interval that these these rifles would go off. So as far as the Ottomans were concerned, it, you know, it was business as usual. Um, mm. For his invention, Private Scurry was awarded the Distinguished Conduct Medal and mentioned in dispatches. Plus, he was actually promoted to sergeant upon his return to Egypt. He actually went on to have a very illustrious career in the Australian Army, and he ended up retiring at the rank of major. So he was commissioned as an officer in France, and he continued to climb the ladder and retired as a major. Um, So, yeah, very clever guy, you know, not someone that was afraid to show a bit of initiative and was rewarded for it, which was pretty cool. Um, Interesting. Another ruse used at Anzac Cove and I really like this, uh, was where troops maintained dead silence for an hour or more. So everyone across the line doesn't shoot. No one does nothing. Everyone goes quiet. Artillery stops. And the Ottoman troops would eventually start 
to come out of their trenches to see what's going oh, on. God. And of course, that's when they'd open fire. So this incident uh, successfully discouraged the Ottomans from inspecting when the actual in, uh, evacuation occurred which was, again, very, very clever. And this is sort of part of the mythos of the, the Anzac sort of spirit. A lot of this sort of ingenuity uh, from the Australians and the New Zealanders that the, the, the armies of the British and French, it's not that they, they, they didn't have this. It's that their, their command was kind of too strict and stringent to allow this sort of free thinking to happen. Um, so the the command structure in the Australian New Zealanders was different. Like how, so, how was that? How was that different to the command structure in the the British and the French? Was it, it, it what, cultural or yeah for, formal? It it was more of a cultural thing. So the like supreme Allied commander um, was British, and you know a lot of the senior officers. Uh, in command of the Anzac Division was still British. Um, but for the first time ever, and this is sort of where this is really important, I haven't mentioned this yet, this was the first war where Australia and New Zealand troops were represented by their own flag, that they were there representing their own country. They had right. their own officers. They had their own uniforms, you know, all of that sort of stuff. So yep. there's sort of a bit of a cultural aspect, I think, that can't be understated in this respect as well. So the Allied, Allied force was evacuated and embarked onto ships with the Anzacs suffering no casualties on the final night of the evacuation right everyone the last night every single person that left the line left the line alive which is incredible truly Ooh. is incredible um however of course large quantities of supplies and stores uh were left behind um and the ottomans got them all how useful that was to them i don't know but overall the allied death toll was 56 thousand men including eight thousand seven hundred and nine from australia and two thousand seven hundred and twenty one from new zealand well look when i i hear those numbers in there and it's it's just an inconceivable large number look on on both sides it's just such a waste exactly right i think the best way to visualize these numbers and i know this sounds a bit crude i guess uh is in terms of sports stadiums and their capacity um mm, mm. when we're talking fifty six thousand people that in australia you know the, the mcg i think hosts a hundred thousand people yep so if you know when you sort of if you're familiar you know if you're a sports fan and you're familiar you sort of go holy moly you know, you see the faces in the crowd and you go, wow, that really helps put those big, big numbers in perspective, at least for me. Um, so news of the landing at Gallipoli made a profound impact on Australia and New Zealanders at home. Uh, and the 25th of April quickly became a day on which they remember the sacrifice of those who had died in the war. 
Adelaide, South Australia, was the site of Australia's first built monument to the Gallipoli Landing, unveiled by Governor-General Sir Ronald Munro Ferguson on Wattle Day on the 7th of September 1950, just over four months after the landings. And, of course, this was still during the Gallipoli campaign. Uh, South Australia also organised during eight-hour day. I'm not familiar with eight-hour day. Uh, I, I think maybe it's a precursor to Labor Day or something like that. Yeah, I think um, it was a union-driven day. Yeah, on the 13th of October 1915, it was renamed Anzac Day and a carnival was organised to raise money for the Wounded Soldiers Fund. The name Anzac Day was cho chosen through a competition, interestingly enough, and the winner who submitted that name was named Robert Wheeler. I wonder what he's doing now. Um, <laughs> uh, Melbourne observed uh, an Anzac Remembrance Day on the 17th of December 1915. Once again... This proves that South Australia is the most progressive oh, state. <laughs> I think that's going to be a theme for Australia. It's just, it's just how much more progressive Australia, South Australia was than, than Victoria. <laughs> it, seemed, it just it keeps happening, you know. Oh, keep, um, keep going at it. <laughs> however, the, the actual first instance of what would soon become an annual national ritual... Uh, Anzac Day, as we know it today, started in Queensland. So on the 10th of January 1916, Cameron David, oh, sorry, Canon David John Garland, a pretty famous name, uh, was appointed the Honorary Secretary of the Anzac Day Commemoration Committee of Queensland at a public meeting which endorsed the 25th of April as the date to be promoted as Anzac Day in 1916 and ever after. Mm. Queensland Premier T.J. Ryan urged the other Australian states to enact a similar parade, and soon the date became a national day of reflection. There was a very similar thing that occurred in New Zealand. Um, yeah, look, it surprised me how early Anzac Day actually came about. If you had asked me to pick it, I would have said that it was going to be sometime after the... The, the war i didn't realize that it was uh well basically during the war it, it absolutely was during the war so you know we're talking only a few weeks after the evacuation of the of the gallipoli peninsula that in queensland at least this sort of became a, a you know semi-official thing um the date, the 25th of April, was officially named Anzac Day in 1916, and in that year it was marked by a wide variety of ceremonies and services in Australia, New Zealand, and in London. In New Zealand, it was gazetted as a half-day holiday, which I don't know what a half-day holiday means. I imagine it's from sure. noon. I'm not really sure. Um, but You'd want it to be the second half, wouldn't you? Wow, that's right. You know, no work until midday, and then you have to get back to it. That would suck. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Do you get to do you get to pick what half that you get? Or? Yeah, that's right. Um, in London, over two thousand Australia and New Zealand troops marched to the streets of the city, and marches were held all over Australia. 
wounded soldiers from Gallipoli attended the Sydney March in a convoy of cars um, that were accompanied by nurses that were looking after them. Um, and we actually have a photo from the parade of that day. And we'll, we'll put it in the show notes, but I've also posted it on the r slash Australian subreddit. So from... 1916 onwards in both Australia and New Zealand, Anzac memorials would be held on or about the 25th of April. So it, it was basically a formalised occasion at that point. Um, of course, back in 1916, things were a bit more casual, a bit more fluid. Um, meanwhile, of course, the First World War is continuing. Uh, and on Anzac Day in 1918, 18, the Australians from the 13th, 14th and 15th Brigades helped defeat the Germans with the British and French forces in the Second Battle of villers bretonneux which was notable as it was the biggest and most successful tank action of the German army in the First World War. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, so six tanks were engaged each other, at least initially, more became uh, joined later on but not, not you know not by a lot by today's standards uh but of course we need to remember that tanks were at this point brand new the, the whole mm. concept was brand new um and this is really interesting uh, quirk of, of uh, australian history uh a german a7v number 506 called mephisto became ditched in a crater and was abandoned by its crew. Uh, this was recovered by Australian troops in the subsequent few months and now is held in the Queensland Museum of Armour. I believe it's up in Cairns. It's the uh, okay. only surviving original A7V in existence. All others that currently exist are reproductions based off Mephisto. Huh. So, Australia, we claim, and we've got it. We captured it. We put it on a ship, and we brought it home to Australia. Wow. So, well, that's keen. Uh, it's very keen, um, and we still have it. It is a war trophy that we that we still have um, huh. up in the the Armour Museum in Cairns, I believe it is. So, there are a few other A seven Vs, but they're all replicas like faithful replicas but they're based off the one we have we have the only original so well, huh. 2473 australian men died protecting the village of villas bretonneau and they've never been forgotten uh the locals uh host the villas bretonneau military cemetery to honor the Australian soldiers who fell in France during the Great War. So it's not limited to the men that died in Villers Bretonneux. It's 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 open. Um they've held unofficial ceremonies organized by the locals on the weekends closest to Anzac Day uh for decades, basically since um the war, but of but the actual first official Anzac Day service that was like organised by the Australian government was in 2008 to commemorate oh. the 90th anniversary. Okay, okay. So we'll sort of come back to to Anzac Day services held in other countries a little bit later. Um, Anzac Day became a day on which to celebrate 
uh, to commemorate, I should say, the lives of Australia and New Zealanders which were lost in that war as well as in subsequent wars. The meaning of the day was further broadened to include those killed in all military operations by which the countries have been involved. So it's interestingly, Anzac Day was first commemorated at the Australian War Memorial in 1942, so during the Second World War. But due to government orders preventing large public gatherings in case of Japanese air attack, it was a small affair and was neither there was never a march nor a memorial service or anything that we that we have today. Um, okay. But Anzac Day has been annually commemorated at the Australian War Memorial ever since. Um, and for listeners, if you haven't been to the Australian War Memorial in Canberra, um, even if you're not interested in it, I think it's well worth a visit. I think it's it's definitely um, a, a really special, sombre place that's far more interesting about... It's more focused on the human stories rather than the, the tragedy of war, if that makes sense. I mean, of course. That's yeah, look, I'd, I'd, I'd agree with that. You know, it's 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 no secret in my opinion of the people who send um send people off to die in in wars and, and government etc. But I have been to uh, Australian War Museum a, a couple of of times, and I would I would I would second that what you've just said. Yeah, it it is. It's a really it's a really special place. So, um. Of course, during and after Australia's involvement in the Vietnam War, which was 1962 to 1975, uh, interest in Anzac Day reached its lowest point in Australia history. Um, on the 26th of April 1975, The Australian, the newspaper, which is still a newspaper today, uh, yeah. well, I, I don't think, do they still print it, actually? Good question. I, I don't know. Don't know the answer to that it may or may not be a newspaper today <laughs> <Yeah>. but <laughs> it, it is still a a major news broadcaster let's call it that uh they covered the passing of anzac day in a single story it didn't make front page it was a non-event uh the protesters of the war used anzac day celebrations to voice their opposition to conscription and the war in general um this ended with a lot of protesters going to prison for, you know, in my opinion, good reason. Um, disrupting an event like that to, for political reasons, uh, you know, in my mind is, is wrong. But on the 25th of April, 1990, the legend, the hero, Bob Hawke, became the first Australian politician to visit Gallipoli. He also decided that the government would pay to take Anzac veterans to Gallipoli for the 75th anniversary of the Dawn Landing, the ones that were, you know, left. Um, Anzac Day celebrations really increased into popularity after this. I mean, Bob Hawke, as I said, uh, is, is a legend in his own right. And, of course, his... Um, Plus, he knew how to play to the crowd. He he did, didn't he? He was very good at that, yep. and and that really blew up Anzac Day. I mean, it was already it was still on the up and up, uh, popularity wise, but um, that really cemented its its uh, increase in popularity. So, 
Danes and New Zealanders recognise the 25th of April as a ceremonial occasion to reflect on the cost of war and to remember those who fought and died in the war. Commemorative services and marches are held at dawn, which is when the original diggers boarded the boats to hit the beaches at Gallipoli. That's why it's held at dawn, if anyone was wondering. Uh, the original oh, timing of the landing... I thought it was just the start of the day. Didn't know that. Yeah, because it was the original time of of the landings, ideally. So it's sort of in in memory of that. It really is. It's really heavy on the Gallipoli stuff because that was the first Australian and New Zealand action as independent nations. Um it's held mainly at war memorials in cities and towns across both nations and the sites of some Australia and New Zealanders' more recognised battles and greatest losses, such as the aforementioned Villas Bretonneau in France, Gallipoli in Turkey, and of course, Long Tan in Vietnam. Though the Vietnamese... I have a personal connection to this. Uh, my, my parents went to Vietnam to Long Tan for the memorial a few years ago and right. the, the Vietnamese are a bit funny about the memorial a lot of Vietnamese died at Long Tan a lot more than the Australians um, it's like 10 to 1 sort of thing and oh, wow. uh, there there was a memorial erected uh, not long after the battle um, and it was pulled down subsequently once once Australians left Vietnam and you know the sort of years went on there was a very large concrete cross that had been erected in memorial uh, and I think some enterprising farmer decided it would be better used somewhere else so it was it was um, removed and a new one was actually placed and the Vietnamese government does allow memorials to be held however it's sort of a little bit funny about it. It is a working farm and things like that. So, um, yeah, look, I understand, you know, what? at the end of the day, they won the war and it's it's sort of a special place for them as well and they don't really want us to to um, commemorate it too much. Anyway, yeah, that's of course, enough. there are Anzac Day traditions. So one of which we've already mentioned is the gunfire breakfast, which is black tea or coffee with rum added, which... Uh, occurs normally uh, sort of straight after the dawn ceremony. Um, and this recalls the breakfast that many of the soldiers were given before the battle. Um, and, of course, Two Up is a game played during the day as well. In fact, mm. I feel like Two Up is only played on Anzac Day in most places. Um, for those yeah, unfamiliar... Like part of that, it's a, a bit of a dispensation given that it's a, a gambling game, it's sort of there's a, a tacit blind eye turned to it. Yeah. You, you can't play two-up without gambling, really. Uh, for those that are um, unfamiliar, two-up is a game where you play with basically a couple of coins and you throw them in the air and try to guess which way they will face. It's, it's a very simple game and it's very fun, but it really the fun, I think, comes from the gambling aspect as opposed to the skill and thrill of the game itself so yeah well I mean, um, when, it when it comes to skill basically the skill is being able to toss the coins in the air so they <laughs> can, can spin and and also when you when you're playing two up outside i've seen uh, i don't even know if uh 
I saw it last, last casino I saw it in was uh, Crown Casino many years ago. And I oh, don't really? Even, yeah, yeah, they had it going, but they had, who would have thought, they had an edge for the house and it was something. Of course. I can't remember. It was something like if there was, I don't know what you call it when it's neither heads or tails. There's, there's a word for when it's once a head and once a tail. Yeah. But there was a certain number of them. It might have been three in a row or something like that. Then the house won everyone's money, and I thought, oh, okay, that's <laughs> that's a little sting in the tail. But we, you know, when you're playing, when you're playing for real with real people who just want to enjoy it, uh, there's no house there raking the pot. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. No, you're not wrong. I don't think I'd play it in a casino. No, um, no. <laughs> um, Breakfast, like an actual meal, is provided quite often times to veterans for for nothing. Uh, depending on where you are, though, uh, a lot of places do do it. You know, it might be like a bacon egg roll or something like that. Um, sort of uh, a nice little thing because there is often also a march, basically a. a another ceremony held often between sort of eight and nine o'clock. So a lot of the veterans that do the dawn service sort of hang around, play a bit of two up, drink some, drink some rum, have a bit of, have a bit of breakfast and then sort of carry on, uh, for, for the second, um, event and then sort of shuffle, shuffle, shuffle home after that. So not everywhere does it. Um, but it is quite common, common enough, I should say. And that's typically, um, only, typically only veterans? That get it for free. It's, it's not like you can't get breakfast at your local RSL or something like that, um, but, you know, you may have to pay a few dollars or something like that. So um, if you've got medals on your chest, very clearly identified as a, as a veteran, normally they'll just give it to you. But, again, not everywhere does this. So, um, and just that with you saying the saying medals, as <laughs> – as you said before, we uh, before when we just just discussed it briefly before that, you said there's a lot of things, little little details. I had seen something uh, before about depending on whether they're your medals or not, you wear them on one side of the chest or the other. Is that yes. true, or is that an urban legend? Yes, no. So that's true. So uh, you wear your medals on your left. Uh, if they're your medals, and you wear your medals on the right, if you're wearing them for somebody else. So, ah. it be as as um, as a lot of veterans started to pass, um, their children or their nephews, or you know, there would be someone else in their life that would want to continue the legacy, basically. And as a result, they would then wear their medals and march in their place. Um, and at a sign of respect for those so that so as you're not confused with other people, you'll see the people where the medals on their right didn't, they're not the veteran. They are representing them, the veteran. And people with medals on their left are the veteran and they're your medals. However, in saying that, some veterans wear both because, uh, you know, a lot of, it's not uncommon to have sort of military type families where you may be wearing your your grandfather's medals and stuff like that so i uh
I... So you, you can you can actually see uh, veterans with medals on both sides. So the ones on the left are theirs, but the ones on the right, they're also commemorating someone else. Exactly. So oh, okay. my grandfather has a number of medals that, um, and he's recently fallen quite ill, and I didn't, but I should. I was going to ask him if he wanted me to wear his two sort of walk in his stead, you know. Um, I didn't because I didn't want to... I think he's a bit glum about being a bit sick, so I thought, mm, I might just leave it, but if he's no better next year, then I, or, or, God forbid, he passes in that time, then then I certainly will as well. So, um, Interestingly, there are also a number of other countries that observe Anzac Day commemorations. These are in alphabetical order, and it starts with Antarctica. Order. <laughs> How many are there? There's quite a few, so we'll go yeah. through them really. We'll go through them really quickly. I just wanted to start with Antarctica, um, because of course at Scott Base, which is a New Zealand Antarctic research station, uh, but quite often houses a lot of Australians as well. So it's sort of in keeping with the Anzac spirit, uh, where we join with our Kiwi brethren. Um, so they, every year they, they hold, um, a, a, you know, a fairly large service considering, um, the base is quite large. So they, they hold quite a service there and quite often the Americans, uh, there's an American base nearby. Um, and they normally come over and join as well. So in, Belgium, they hold services in a number of different places, again, mostly to do with the First and Second World War, mostly the First um, First World War sort of commemorations. Brunei from the Second World War, Canada in both, Cyprus and Egypt, both well, from both, and and same as France. Interestingly, in certain so, sorry, parts these of, are all these are all holding specifically Anzac Day, Anzac Day commemorations. Wow. Okay. France actually has quite a few. So Villas Bretonneux, as I've already explained, holds holds one. Um, is quite well known, uh, and they also hold one in the town of Fromel. Um, which there is a very large military cemetery there, which there's a few hundred Australian soldiers that are buried there. Um, so they, they hold an, an event there. Um, French Polynesia, so in, in uh, Papiete, which is the capital of French Polynesia, or Tahiti, as we call it, um, has held ceremonies i think this is reasonly recent like in the last sort of 20 years um but they they sort of do it as well um anzac day is there's a commemoration that is held in berlin every year in germany um as part of the commonwealth war graves in in berlin Greece holds an Anzac Day ceremony as well, um, because of course in the Second World War there was a lot of Anzacs uh, or Australians uh, in the Mediterranean. Hong Kong also has one. Hong Kong. Um, 
Hong Kong does it as well because we've got again it's more about the Second World War. You know, a lot of the Pacific stuff happened in the Second World War. So, um, India actually they've they've held leith sorry wreath laying ceremonies um, in the past for Commonwealth War Graves Cemetery in Kolkata. Um, there's a lot of Australians. Again, I think we forget that uh, the British Raj at the time, which included uh, modern-day Myanmar and um, Bangladesh, the Burma-Thailand Railway went through that area that oh, yeah. yep. prisoners of war built. And so as a result, you know, India has, has a part of that as well. Ireland, uh, in Dublin, they do Anzac Day, but this is more um, expats that live there. So yep. the, the the Irish allow it, but again, famously, the Irish were uh, neutral in at least the Second World War, but they do, they don't stop it. So uh, in Israel, there's also a commemorative service um that is held and again it's more more to do with the second world war but malaysia <clears throat> holds quite a number of them um again it's more second world war stuff against the japanese uh malta also has one again second world war stuff right so this is so so a lot of these are rather than rather than anzac day being the commemoration of gallipoli as it uh originally started out to be uh these a lot of these other countries I'm get I, I'm understanding from what you're saying is that they're using Anzac Day as the um, acknowledgement of the service of all Australian New Zealand soldiers over the over the multiple wars as it's exactly right as it's now become yeah so these are these are commemorations held in these places exactly right as a result of actions that has happened since the Gallipoli campaign. And I think that's really, you know, it's because of the Gallipoli campaign and it's it's from the first day that Australians saw action, which happened on the 25th of April, 1915, and since. And I think that's where a lot of people think it's, you know, because it originally did start as in in memory of of the Gallipoli campaign, but of course, it's the Gallipoli campaign was was the first action, and ever since, it's everybody ever since. And it, of course, it's also not just those that have passed. It's not just those that died in service. It's also you know all veterans that have suffered as a result of their service. So it it is quite broad today. Um, so where was I up to? This is quite a long list. Oh, uh, you just got to. I think you just got to uh, uh, Malta. Malaysia. Malta. Yep. Yeah, you're up to the Ems. So that's it. Malta. Oh, okay. um, Anzac Day has actually been cel commemorated. I shouldn't say celebrated. Commemorated in Malta ever since 1916. Uh, Malta w was a British protectorate and and always had quite a strong. Um, association with the british military so it's not too surprising that anzac day commemorations have happened really ever since it began um because it was always going to be australians in that area uh in, in both world wars so uh 
Anzac Day is also observed in a few Pacific nations. Um, the Cook Islands and Nui, which are basically protectorates of New Zealand, so they really come under the New Zealand banner of this. Uh, the Pitcairn Islands and Tonga as well. They're all celebrated there. And, of course, uh, Papua New Guinea because of the um, Kokoda track campaign, of course, very famously. Um, Kiribati as well um, because of the islands of uh, South Tarawa, um, which was the site of a terrible massacre of New Zealand servicemen and uh, civilian coast watchers by the Japanese oh. during World War II. The US very famously attacked the island uh, and it was one of their first uh, battles with the Japanese during the island hopping campaign in the South Pacific. And very famously, the Japanese commander said, the US would never defeat us with... 5,000 troops in 5,000 years, and they took it in three days. So that worked. That, that worked well. So, um, Poland uh, also has a joint ceremony. This is mostly to do with the like embassies make a big deal because the Polish are very grateful for everybody that helped them in World War II. So it's more of a sign of respect because Australian troops weren't really in Poland. So, uh, of course, Singapore though, um, it's a big, uh, uh, there's a big war memorial in Singapore, uh, that commemorates not just the, the landings at Gallipoli, but of course the, the campaign in the second world war as well. Yep. Interestingly, a country that I didn't think would be, make this list was South Sudan. Uh, there oh, are, yeah, yep. wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't have guessed that one. Okay. Nope. Um, South Sudan very famously being the newest country, uh, on, on earth as it stands right now. Uh, but there are Australian Defence Force members currently in peacekeeping operations as part of the United Nations mission there. And as a result, they celebrate Anzac Day. Uh, uh they did right. okay. in... Uh, in 2018, they made quite a big show of it. So it's not the South Sudanese government. It's just Australian troops in in South Sudan as part of the peacekeeping force. Uh, coming to the end of this list, Thailand holds a dawn service at Hellfire Pass, which is uh, a massive rock cutting that was dug by prisoners of war. Uh, during the Thai Burma railway that we mentioned before, so uh, this this cutting it, it's I want you to imagine someone at gunpoint tells you to dig through Uluru. That's basically what this is. Uh, oh. It's it's like a solid rock, and they had to dig it by hand, and you know, again, infamously t terrible conditions, and a lot of guys. Uh, died during the construction of the railway and particularly at Hellfire Pass because it was so bad, w hence the name. Um, and as a result, there is always a commemoration held there. Now, last but not least, we've got the United Kingdom and the US, both of which hold multiple ceremonies 
all throughout the countries. I'm not going to go through them all. There's a very long list, and it's very nice that both of them hold um, a lot of different commemorations and services throughout both their countries to remember both the First World War and, of course, the Second World War as well. And it brings, it warms my cold, dead heart to see oh. the American military actually do such a hoo-ha. They're big for pumping up their own chest, but it turns out they're quite good for um, pumping up ours as well. So that's quite nice. Yeah. Okay. So all that said... We, this is, and I know it doesn't seem like a brief history, but I can assure you this was certainly a brief history. There was a lot, there was a lot I had to leave out. Um, so I ask you, my dear listeners, what does Anzac Day mean to you? Is it uh, a celebration of loved ones' sacrifices in the line of duty? Uh, or maybe it's a bit like myself, a somber day of reflection? Or is it just another day? It's just a holiday that you get and, you know, another day to get on the on the booze. Um, regardless, we'd love to hear your Anzac Day stories over at r slash Australian. Yeah, both of us would. So let us know. Other than that, there's a lot of history, but we've got more to go. Huge, so- huge history. <laughs> Yeah, look, I, I have I have mixed feelings about Anzac Day, as I sort of alluded to in the beginning. I suppose for for me, it's a case of respect those who went, revile those who sent. You know, that's tends to be where I stand on it. You went through a whole lot of things. I think there's a a very sombre side. I think there's also a side to reflect on. Yeah, the mindset of people who send people into to war. But I tend to, I tend to differentiate between the people who are, have been sent and the people who are doing the the sending. So look, I think for, I think from that point of view, I tend to, you, you made the you I, I noted this down as we were we were going. Uh, you corrected yourself a couple of times on celebrate celebrate versus commemorate. And I think that's a um, an important distinction. I tend to think that the com- commemorate is the correct way to to look at it. Uh, I think celebrating is really. I know it's playing too much in the hands of the people who who sent other people over there to to fight and die. Whereas I think commemorate is honouring people who believed that they are doing the right thing and do believe that they're doing the the right thing. Uh, I tend to agree with you that that's a an appropriate correction and an appropriate way to to view it. So I I think two things can be true. I can have my distaste for war, but I can also have my respect for people who are uh, doing doing what they consider to be their duty and doing what is their duty in uh, in a number of instances. And for that reason, I've I've sort of mellowed a little bit on my dislike of a number of the the nationalising and um, the over the top thing of Anzac Day, and thought, look, I will use that as a time to acknowledge people who who did their duty, and not get too concerned about the the people who were doing the manipulation behind the scenes. So. 
I'm probably not alone in that, and it means a lot yeah. of things to a, lo- a lot of people. Uh, but that tends to be where I fall down on it. No, I think that's a good way to think about it. I I should say as well, I I you're right. I did correct myself there, and I think. Part of that also comes from the fact that when I was younger, uh, going to Anzac Day celebrations in, say, Sydney or Brisbane, uh, it, it's as a veteran, as a young veteran, it certainly feels like a celebration uh, because everyone's buying you drinks and uh, lots of pretty girls suddenly want to talk to you and hear all about your life <laughs> and yep. all of this so it, it it you know you feel like a bit of a rock star that day and it's it's great fun but as i've got older um i don't care for any of that anymore um it, 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 you know and we were told at the time that it was definitely a young man's um fun because a lot of the older guys you know, it means something different. And I think as you get older and you mature a bit more and you realise, especially once you've lost friends, um, then it suddenly becomes a bit more of a more serious situation. And I, I do like that the general public generally does hold it in such regard. Um, I don't like, like, there's a few uh, sports uh anzac day yeah things. I, I have a little bit of difficulty with that too mm, and i don't really like that too much so uh of course the nrl has a couple of anzac day um matches that are played oh, since like i think like the 1920s or something like that so and there's AFL like as well yeah they have and it's yeah specifically yeah build as an anzac day match Exactly. So, I don't know. I sort of feel of two minds about it. Um, they all release in New Jersey and all this sort of stuff. But it, it is a bit of a commercialization of the commemora- commemoration and that sort of rubs me the wrong way. But at the same time, I sort of go, eh, maybe, you know, it's maybe it's not so bad. Um, I, I just don't, don't like... I also don't like when politicians use it because it's not... Yep. The, the Australian Defence Forces is always meant to be apolitical and, and again, I think it's wrong when um, they use it for political point scoring of, you know, who got to lay the reef and who, who did this and who did that and where you 100%. were and all that crap. Uh, it, it's just wrong and it, and it takes away from what the day is, is supposed to be about. Yeah, look, I, I agree with you. I agree with you on that com- completely. I see that the same way. So, so yeah, talking now, about... You were, you were about to segue us into yeah, this I was. week in Australian history well, right, before I jumped yeah. in with uh, the, uh, that, that comment. So, yeah, sorry, it had a bit of an interruption, but, yeah, let's let's launch into to that. That was a, a fascinating uh, brief history of Anzac Day. So... Uh, what else happened around this period of time in Australian history? April 23rd, 1788, a settlement is established at Parramatta, west of Sydney, New South Wales. Uh, in 1873, English-born explorer William Goss departs Alice Springs on an expedition to Central Australia, during which he names Ayers Rock. And I thought, well, that's interesting that you use the uh, Uluru analogy before with the uh the 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 thai place where they borrowed through uh the where the local uh anungu the pintajara people call the landmark uluru 
this word is a proper noun with no further particular meaning in the Pintanjara dialect, although it is used as a local family name by the senior, senior traditional owners of Uluru. The, uh, I suppose the anglicised one that William Goss named it after was in honour of the then Chief Secretary of South Australia, Sir Henry Ayres, uh, and since then both names have been used. So it does seem I've... to get it using it interchangeably. Yeah, I've always preferred Uluru just because it's a fun word to say. It um, is. I, I, but I, I do think out of respect for, for the traditional owners of that land because what an incredible place and I feel like we should sort of call it, you know, what what it what it's called. Also, I, don't, I really just don't like this idea of naming landmarks after quote-unquote important people, you know, mostly politicians of a particular time. Um, yep. Oh, yep. I knew it was named after a person, but I don't care who that person is. <laughs> you know what I mean? No. Um, look, I had to look them up. I didn't know. And they, yeah. they went on to be premier and that. But look, I, I tend to agree with you on, on that. I'm not a, big, not a big fan of the, uh, you know, the, the big plaques and uh, the unveiling. And as you said, who put down the wreath first? Yeah, call it something fun, like Uluru. What a fun word yeah. to say. Well, I didn't. Uh, where I, I I was surprised to hear that that word is a proper noun with no yeah. particular meaning. I thought it might describe something, but no, it's obviously the the uh, Pintanjara people's um, name for Uluru. So yeah, I oh, thought that was yeah. interesting. Yeah, thought it'd be, it'd be like big rock or something like that. Well, that's Maybe, what I. That's, that's what I. Two on the nose, I, I guess. Yeah. 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 1874, explorer Alfred Gibson disappears on Ernest Giles' second expedition to the deserts of Western Australia, resulting in the naming, naming of the Gibson Desert. I uh, <laughs> <laughs> can sort, sort of understand that poor bugger. Let's name it after him. Uh, there you go. Yeah. To, from you being up north, uh, 2005, <laughs> Sir Joe Bjocchi-Peterson, the longest-serving premier of Queensland, dies at the age of 94 in Kingaroy, Queensland. Mm. Oh, God, that yes. might even be, speaking of uh, another episode that could be just taken up talking about people, the reign of uh, Joe Bjocchi-Peterson. That was an uh, interesting period of history. Yeah, he's, um, yeah, he's a bit, a bit uh, <laughs> contra controversial in Queensland. You know, people, some, a lot of people love him, a lot of people don't, you know. Yeah, well, we might we might do him one day. Uh, April twenty fourth, nineteen twelve, the government of New South Wales grants forty three acres north of Sydney Harbour for the construction of a zoological garden, later known as Taronga Zoo. So that was in nineteen twelve. That's in, cool. Uh, nineteen eighteen, which you sorry, go on. Frequent listeners will remember that the yep. first view zoo of Australia was also in Sydney. Do you remember where it was? This was a Forex bottle top question a few weeks ago. Hyde Park, wasn't it? It was. It was in Hyde Park. So this is a throwback to when they eventually actually built a proper zoo, a Taronga Zoo. And if you've not been, it's a good zoo, actually. It is a good zoo. It's, mm. it's, it's good. Other, uh, other, uh, unlike the uh, one that we've got locally, oh, God, let's just go do that stupid little joke where there's, you just go in and there's just this ratty little dog and it says not much of a zoo. <laughs> it's a shit zoo. <laughs> Probably not worth it. Okay. 1918, in the First World War, Australia and British forces counterattack. Uh, 
Oh, this is one you mentioned. Counterattack German yes. troops near Amiens, France, uh, commencing the Second Battle of the Word Bretagne. Uh, 1999, on April the 24th, uh, Arthur Boyd, a member, painter Arthur Boyd, a member of the Antipodeans Artist Group, dies in Melbourne at the age of 78, well-known Australian artist. Uh, April 25th, obviously we've just uh, addressed the exact day and the Gallipoli campaign, but in uh, 1896, April 25th, in South Australia, Women exercise their right to vote for the first time, having been limited, given limited suffrage the previous year. So that was before Victoria. Um, yep. <laughs> 1975, the Australian Embassy in Saigon, South Vietnam, is closed and staff evacuated prior to the fall of Saigon. April 26, 1890, uh, Benjo Patterson's poem, the Man from Snowy River is first published. 1890, wow, okay. Well, yeah. That's, earlier that's, than that's I a lot older than I, yeah, that's... Yeah, yeah, it's not what I, not what I expected. Uh, 1939, Robert Menzies becomes Prime Minister of Australia, um, and Menzies was the 12th and longest-serving PM of Australia, holding office for 18 years from... 1939 to 1941 as leader of the United Australia Party, a name which people may recognise. Mm. No, no relationship. <laughs> then 49 to 66 as leader of the Liberal Party. Excuse me, leader of the Liberal Party, of which he played a central role in its creation. And who was he succeeded by? Ooh, who was Menzies succeeded by? I don't know. Our old Holt. <laughs> oh, was he? It wouldn't be an Australia Talks episode without bringing up Harold Holt. I didn't know that Holt followed Menzies. Oh, there you go. Hopefully that'll stick in my head like a Hyde Park Zoo reference as well. (laughs) (laughs) 1804, explorer Matthew Flinders climbs Arthur's Street. uh, Arthur's Street. Arthur's Seat, just down the road from me on Mornington Peninsula. I remember seeing a plaque from that. I think, oh, it would have been a... Because it's easy sometimes to forget when you get in your car and drive up a track or somewhere and you see a plaque and, you know, in this case, Matthew Flinders climbed up here and surveyed the area. So I think, oh, yeah, well, here I am there. You're thinking they had no idea what was up there. They're trying to get through these these tracks. Then it's not even tracks. Trying to get through all this this bush... uh, so, yeah, the perspective's a bit different when you actually think about what it used to be. Yeah, trying to climb to the sort of the highest point to, yeah. to survey the area around them. Um, yeah, and look, it's yeah. a good view. If you get and now you can do it morning. on a yeah. leisurely afternoon, you know. <laughs> exactly, exactly where you can drive there. So if you get down to Mornington Peninsula, check out Arthur's seat. It is a good view. 1896, Sir Henry Parks, uh, known as the father a federation, federation dies in Annandale in New South Wales at the age of 80. 80 in, in, nine, in 1896? 96. Wow. Yes. Wow. Yeah. And we know he must... Go positively ancient for that time. Yep. Yep, bloody oath. 80. It's not a bad... Um, and the, the picture I saw, he looks... <laughs> He <laughs> looks pretty ancient. He was known as the father of Federation due to his early promotion for the Federation of the Six Colonies of Australia as an early critic of British convict transportation. 
and as a proponent for the expansion of the Continental Railway Network. Uh, so, yeah, and I'm assuming Parks uh, in New South Wales is also named after him. All the Parks are. Well, they probably are. <laughs> oh, God. God. <laughs> I walked right into that one. Moving <laughs> on. <laughs> April 28th. Uh, no, nice one. 1996, uh, the 35 people murdered by Martin Bright in town of Port Arthur, Tasmania. And I've got to say, talking about the plaques, I remember when we'd gone down there and the plaque that uh, was you know, notifying the event, I looked at and I thought the largest name on there was the name of the person who opened that plaque. And I can't tell you how much that rubbed me the wrong way. One, that it was the largest name, and two, that it was even on there. Um, just, you know, calling back to what we were saying about the, uh, the coming out there and standing in front of the parade. So, yeah, that reminded me of that. But, yeah, that was um, a horrible yeah. time, obviously. I know, I know exactly what you're talking about because I've seen that plaque myself, and you're right. Oh, I you think have. It's, yeah, I think it's the Governor-General. So for our listeners... I distinctly remember it because I felt the exact same way. When you look at it, it's it's you know a reasonably large plaque, but it, literally half of it is dedicated to I think it was the Governor General at the time or something like that, um, saying you know it's this oh. is dedicated to this person and the, these are his achievements and blah blah blah. And then the other half of it has the listed names of the 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 thirty five. What is it? Thirty-five or thirty-six people 35. Um, uh, listed, much much smaller, literally smaller than anything else that's written on there. Um, yeah, well, I'm glad to hear that it, that annoyed you as as much. Well, yeah, I, I probably annoyed is too um, mild a thing for me. It just it it made me angry just looking at that. Um, my dude, there's more to be concerned about down down there, but I'm I'm glad to. Uh, hear that you you saw it and had a similar reaction to me a visceral reaction april 29th uh 1770 captain james cook arrives and names botany bay aboard the hm uh bark endeavor uh 1941 a 7.2 magnitude earthquake the strongest recorded in australia hits near the station of uh meberry in murchison district of uh, western australia 1952, the ANZUS Treaty, a military alliance between Australia and New Zealand and the United States, comes into force. And finally, we talked about uh, the Petrov affair in a previous episode, or the, the history one. The Soviet Union's embassy in Canberra is closed as a result of the Petrov affair. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. They so, were so upset, they closed... Yeah. The embassy, which is just, yeah it's, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. He yeah, got the sooks and went home. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's this week in Australian history, 23rd of April to 29th. Fantastic. I didn't realise that the 29th of April was when Captain Cook arrived in Botany Bay. That's a pretty big deal, I guess. Yep. For... In in good ways and bad ways. Uh, yeah, that's 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 right. You know, yeah, yes, that's a, a good way to phrase it. 
um, and very soon relocated to what we now call Sydney Harbour. Um, Botany Bay, for, for listeners that aren't aware, Botany Bay is the the bay south of Sydney Harbour where the airport is. If you're flying in, it's where you fly over into the airport. Uh, so not not part of Sydney Harbour, but, uh, you know, uh, try again and you'll get a, 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 a much better much better spot quite frankly yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. turn up and say wow this is incredible it's just impossible that it could be any better than this <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean you know Botany Bay is not terrible but by contrast City Harbour is, is significantly better in every oh, way yeah. so um, <laughs> <laughs> you know second second time lucky I guess um, yeah, yeah exactly. fantastic so I have here cracked one open, a cold <laughs> beverage. Uh, so, uh, and for our listeners, this is all a ruse. That was actually a can. Uh, I have bottle tops pre-selected tonight. I've actually got two uh, because I feel like both of these are fairly easy and you should get them right. So... What country? Oh, the pressure's on. I mean, the first one's a given, I feel. What country invented the black box flight recorder in 1958? Oh, look, every, everyone knows that. I don't think there's even really any need for me to answer it, is there? <laughs> I mean, it is an Australian themed podcast, so yeah. that would give I did, you a hint. I did think it was Australia, but the way that you presented <laughs> that, I thought, God. So it was Australia? It was Australia, yeah. Ah, okay. um, I thought to myself, oh, maybe I should look into the history of that. And then I think, no, that's going to be quite uh, the rabbit hole to go down, I'm sure. So I thought, no. Nah. And then as I cracked a, a second 4X, I saw another one that quite interested me. Uh, and I'll tell you it now. What biscuit was named after a horse? from the 1958 Kentucky Derby. So this Ooh. is a famous Australian biscuit. Again, of course, these are all Australian-themed. Australian yeah, yeah. An Australian... So what Australian biscuit was named after a horse from the 1958 Kentucky Derby? Which means it has to be an old one. Um, an old biscuit. Yeah. Is it... Jets? No, they're crackers. That's not a biscuit. Oh, okay, right. Okay. <laughs> he says he says with a, with disdain in his voice. Mm. Oh, okay, biscuit. Um, <laughs> uh, what's an old fashioned? Uh, it's not Monte Carlo, is it? No. Also, Jats are crap. You want Ritz. <laughs> They're the better ones. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, okay. I was having a, oh, obviously I was like, the score there. Yeah, I was having a sip of my beer. I, I recently had this argument with a friend of mine because they brought out Jets and I was like, no, these are shit. You need a Ritz. Ritz are the ones that are, uh, are sort of like buttery and crumbly and sweet. Jets are the, the crackers that are like like a proper cracker, you know, they're, they're sort of plain and salted. Um, if you said <laughs> Ritz were, I might let that pass, but. <laughs> um, all right, do you give up? Oh, You're going to kick yourself I, when I tell I, you. I, I, oh, okay, well, give me, give me a hit. Give me the first letter. They're still in production. They're extremely popular today. It starts with T. 
You're kidding me, Tim Tams. Tim Tams. Yep. Uh, yep. Wow. Blew my no, mind. Wouldn't have guessed that. Wouldn't have guessed I'm, that at all. That sounds like a marketing yep. name. Exactly. A million years. I never would have guessed Tim Tams myself. So I'm kind of glad that you didn't either. Um, and and I'm a little bit of me is a little bit upset that they were named after a horse from the 1958 Kentucky Derby. Of course, my dear listener, uh, this could all be crap. Uh, we don't know. The 4X <laughs> bottle tops. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which, is, which are seldom cited in, uh, exactly. in scientific papers. <laughs> um, are they right? We don't know. We just go, look, uh, you know, I'm a pisshead, so I'm not going to yeah. know. Um, <laughs> all right. Well. And on that bombshell, thank you so much for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. If you have any feedback or suggestions for top or for topics for another show, please get in touch with us on the r slash Australian subreddit or email us at Australian subreddit at proton.me. Otherwise, join us next week for another episode of Australia Talks. And remember, at r slash Australian, we are Australian. Thank you so much. See you later, DK. That was great. Thanks, Adi. Bye.